we're going to be in John chapter 3 this morning. And I know you just sat down, but would you stand up? You'll thank me in two hours when I'm done with my sermon. (laughs) That you got to stretch your legs. People are starting to leave right now. (laughs) John chapter 3, and we're going to read God's Word together. John chapter 3, verse 1. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform these signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, You must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear it sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus. And do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen. But still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Say this one with me. I think you all know it. Don't even need to look down. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life or eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Thank you for your word, Lord. I pray now. As we read and consider the words of Jesus to Nicodemus, this religious leader, that if there are any here this morning that are lost in the way that Nicodemus was, living under the pretension of religion because he had a background and a reputation that made him seem like an elite member of society, I pray that none of us would hide behind that if we need to be born again today. And I pray that for those of us who have experienced the rebirth, that we would also be reminded of how important these truths are. We hold them dear. 
They shape our thinking and our life. So we identify with who you have made us to be. So Father, breathe on this text as you have. Inspire us this morning. Teach us by the Holy Spirit's power that we might understand the words of Jesus this morning. In whose name we are praying. In Jesus' name we all said together. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. John chapter 3, isn't this a familiar text? Uh, I think we probably all, if we grew up at church, even if you didn't, you probably know John chapter 3, verse 16, right? Uh, a lot of you said that without even looking down. Um, I memorized it in the King James, so I had to look down to make sure I wasn't uh, misquoting from my NIV. Um, but it's important that when we look at John 3.16 that we read the rest of its context and the man to whom this particular sentence was spoken to, Nicodemus, whom we'll look at uh, this morning. Um, but as we open this text, I do have to delve a little bit into my own story because we're talking about rebirth and I've told probably bits and pieces of my conversion experience before, but bear with me if you've heard it all before. Um, but reflecting on what Jesus is really talking about, it just reminded me of the journey that I've been on. Uh, like all of you, the story of how Jesus has been pursuing me and making me new. And it's come in a variety of different ways. I know for a lot of us growing up in the church, we kind of thought about Christianity as a moment uh, and so a lot of times, you know, in the circles I used to uh, run in, in, in Christian circles, I used to get asked a lot, a lot of times, at what moment did you make a decision? And, and I do think there are moments in our lives where we make important decisions to follow Jesus. But how many have realized that even from that earliest moment that you decided to follow Jesus, you had to continue to decide to follow Jesus? So I, I don't want to get anybody fuzzy on the fact that following Jesus is the rest of your life. It's not just like that one wedding day, you know, you get married and you say, I've decided to make you my spouse. Then you got to stay faithful and choose that person every morning, breath and all, for the rest of your life. And so too in following Jesus, it's not just about the wedding day, the baptism day. It's about the life of following Jesus. Amen? And uh, so for me, my, my journey started uh, probably earliest cognitive memory of like a, a real significant moment was I'm eight years old on a trip with my uncle Brent, uh, who sells Christian uh, uh, greeting cards at the time, Day Spring. And uh, I'm waiting for him out in the parking lot. And a woman who works for Child Evangelism Fellowship approaches me in the parking lot and shares with me the gospel through that little book that has no pictures or words, but just colored pages. How many of you seen that? The gold page, the black page, the red page, the white page, and the green page, which stood for grow. Um, and she explained the basics of what that book entailed about the gospel, enough for an eight-year-old kid to understand. She then prayed with me, and for me, that was the mark of something. I don't know what Jesus saw, but to the best of my eight-year-old gray matter, cognitive of ability. I just said yes to Jesus, prayed a simple prayer with an older lady, and on I went with my life. And that became an anchor for me. For a lot of years, I could always point back to that moment and say, in that parking lot in Redding, California, with that lady, I prayed after I saw the book with just colored pages. And that was my story. But then something happened called puberty. <laughs> That messes most of us up, right? All my little like pure days of walking with Jesus got derailed because of girls' puberty and peer pressure in high school. And so I sort of went wayward 
in high school for a good chunk of my high school years. Um, still going to church, but uh, smoking doobies and chasing girls that did that kind of stuff as well. And, you know, just being your very typical idiot uh, teenager full of hormones uh, and all of that. And uh, when I was 16, I remember my parents uh, sent me on a retreat, but it was a men's retreat, and I was only 16, uh, and I don't know how I ended up on this retreat. Uh, the, the good thing is there was no girls or peers to distract me the whole weekend, and it was a very intense retreat about uh, spiritual practices. And I remember for the very first time in my life, I was sent out for an hour, one hour, to pray with some instructions on ways to pray. The whole retreat was centering around prayer, and I was sent out to actually practice this prayer. And for the first time in my life, I really felt like I encountered God. I, I, I began to speak to God um, more than just memorize prayers or just little bless this food kind of stuff. I was communing with the Most High, and it had a significant effect on my life. And at 16, I was all, the, my first time I was on fire. You know, we use that term, I was, I was on fire. I caught fire on that retreat, and I came down the mountain of this beautiful mountain in southern Oregon, this retreat center, and I was Martin Luther with my 95 thesis and my hammer and nail, and I was about ready to just rock some folks, and I had these carnal siblings that I was going to reform, and this carnal high school that I was going to reform, and, and I came with my big old family 10-pound Bible to school, and that lasted for about a month. And then I went back to my waywardness because I didn't have any Christian friends or mentors to help me, and I soon slipped back into my old practices. Some of you know what that's like. Get all excited, but there's just no one to keep you centered. And uh, it really came to a, a head, and I know I've told this before, when I totaled my first car, 1987 Chevy Blazer. I, I ran it right into a guardrail, totaled it. And put my brother in the windshield. My sister busted her head open. They were both in the emergency room. And I remember just that cathartic experience of knowing what I had done by my recklessness. And, uh, but also feeling like God had been whispering to me for a while. And I had been kind of waffling back into my old ways. Uh, as minor as they were, they were still significantly shaking my fist at God. And it was at that moment, standing in the emergency room, a pastor named Jim Wright came out from our church, and uh, he's actually been here to speak before. He was used instrumentally by God, and he went into that emergency room and just remember his hand on my shoulder, and he just began to pray over our family. And uh, it's, it's like the lights went out, like I was having an out-of-body experience, um, and I just felt like I heard God speak to me for the very first time in a way that I remember. And I remember essentially what God told me is that you belong to me and I will continue to pursue you until you come to me, but the next time you get off track, it's going to be more severe. I, but I'll get you. And I just remember going, I'm done. I'm, that's all I could pray. I'm done, I'm done, I'm done, I'm done. And I was done. And that, that marked for me a significant moment and I've needed many significant moments since then. But it was in those moments following that I became 
A follower of Jesus was water baptized by a friend of mine in the mountains of southern Oregon and had a real tremendous experience with the baptism of the Holy Spirit is all I could explain it at. I didn't have the theology. I just knew like I had fresh power. I received a calling to, to be a pastor uh, and was anointed by God, I believe, to do so. And uh, that was the trajectory I was on. And when I look at the course of my life, I think it, it falls into this pattern that I, I believe a lot of us live on. And it's the pattern of believe, rebel, repent, and get and receive. Believe, re- repent, rebel, and receive. And, and I think for a lot of us, that is, is the path, is that, that, that sometimes we'll, we'll believe something in the Scriptures, Like, as a Christian, this happens to you. Something of God and His truth comes to you and you say, I believe that. But then that truth gets challenged and you start walking away from that truth. And and in some way, whether overt or subtle, you rebel against the truth. And it may not be as extreme as, you know, just walking back into total wayward sin. But in your mind and heart, you wrestle with that truth. And then there's the moment when God calls you back and you repent of your waywardness against that truth of God. And then there's the receiving, the fresh renewing. You know, after repentance, when we turn back to God, there's this time of renewal that that you only know if you've experienced being wayward in believing something, turning from God in that thing, rebelling against God, hardening your heart, and then that moment of repentance brings that sweet renewal time. And we'll talk a lot about these kinds of things this morning. But I think it's important that as we think about the Christian life, maybe in the continuum of this cycle, believe, rebel, repent, receive, asking yourself just in the truths that you know about God that you you have walked in, where are you on this continuum? Are you in a place of just believing new truths about yourself, about God, about the world? Are you in a place of shunning some of those truths and fighting God against those truths or having those truths challenged? Or is God calling you into a time of repentance to say, this is true, return to me in this way? Or are you in a time of you, you freshly repented and come back to God and, and in that way you're being renewed and refreshed and receiving a fresh baptism of the Holy Spirit? Well, now to our text because here Jesus confronts somebody who was one of society's elite. He's an older, affluent, married, educated, religious male Jew. You couldn't be in a better place in Israel at that time. Nicodemus has a very high regard in Israel. You couldn't be better off in the eyes of the religious, in the eyes of uh, the socioeconomic. He was Jewish, he was male, and he was a baller. I mean, he was a Pharisee and a member of the Sanhedrin. And we'll talk about what that meant for him. But Jesus confronts a man who basically looks like he has it all together. He was a Pharisee. Now, the Pharisees were a sect of Judaism. They were a religious sect, only small in number, but they were very zealous for the Torah and the rituals and religious purity commands of the Mosaic law. The Pharisee, the word Pharisee is an Aramaic word that just means separated ones. And they were a very influential group in Jewish society. And so Nicodemus was one of those guys. He was a Pharisee, but he was also part of the the Jewish ruling council, or also called maybe in your translation, the Sanhedrin. Now the Sanhedrin was our version, the closest we have in comparison would be the Supreme Court. This was the Jewish Supreme Court, made up of 71 members 
And so thinking about Nicodemus, he is, is your equivalent of a Supreme Court judge, but a religious one, like the one that has the Ten Commandments in his courtroom and says, y'all, I will judge according to these commandments. He's a family man, he's a religious man, he's a good man. He's everything that a male Jew would aspire to be. And yet Jesus says, you're lost. Now that's shocking because you don't think of a church-going Supreme Court judge as someone that needs Jesus. I mean, we would say he probably already found him, right? He's a Torah scholar, he's a Pharisee, he's, he's in the Sanhedrin. I mean, how could he not be right with God? And Jesus says, you are not right with God. Unless you are born again, you will not see the kingdom of God, Nicodemus. Now this brings us back because a lot of times when we think about those who are in need of repentance or in need of Jesus or who aren't born again, we're thinking about the prostitute or the drug addict or the, 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 the shady tax collector or those in society that are at the bottom, the leprous person, the cripple, the lame, those who we would go, that's a person in need. They're poor, they're needy, they're sinful. And Jesus goes right to the very height of Judaism and says, in this elite group, Nicodemus, you are in need of the born-again experience. You are not born again. You need me more than you realize, but it's so easy to hide behind these moral facades. But a moral member of the Jewish religious society is lost. Jesus looks behind all the facades, doesn't he? You know Jesus is not a respecter of persons. How, can, how many can say amen to that? He doesn't care what your socioeconomic status is. If you're lost, you're lost. You may be rich and lost. You may be poor and lost. You may be poor and following Jesus. You may be rich and totally wayward, or you may be rich and following Jesus. But Jesus sees the condition of the heart. And this was not the reason, most likely, that Nicodemus came to Jesus. If you read the text again, in John chapter 3, you see Jesus comes to Nicodemus saying, you must be born again, but Nicodemus was probably coming for political reasons. Look at verse 2. It looks like he's coming as a representative politically of the religious Jews. He says, Rabbi, sort of flattering him, teacher, you're a great teacher, we know that you were a teacher who has come from God because no one could do these works unless you had come from God. He's like, I'm coming as a representative of all the Sanhedrin and the religious uh, leaders because we have seen your miracle powers. We've seen what you're doing, your influence, and uh, we need to figure out how to tame or get you on our side, you radical rabbi, Yeshua of Nazareth. And it's, it's that political maneuvering that seems to draw Nicodemus as I see it. And Jesus turns the tables on him totally. He was coming to... Politic. He was coming to deal in something that was very impersonal. And Jesus says, Nicodemus, you're not even going to see the kingdom of God. You're not born again. You must be born again. And so this morning, I want us to just focus on the one major must of John chapter 3. You must, verse 7, be born again. Now, Nicodemus, obviously, from the reading of the text, doesn't get what Jesus is saying. He's like, wait a second. I'm old and big and my mom is old. This is awkward. How am I going to get back in my mom's womb? I'm not calling mom up. Hey, mom, this guy Jesus told me I need to fix something. And I don't know how to explain this to you, but we got to talk. 
And he's like, I don't get this. And, and Jesus sees that Nicodemus doesn't get it. And so then he goes to explain what it is to be born again. And that, the, the, the term born again is one of those terms that makes us sound really weird. If you go around to people that are non-church people that didn't grow up in the, the Christian worldview, uh, telling people that you're born again doesn't make any sense. It makes you sound like a weirdo. I'm born again, and so you must be born again. And they're thinking, what in the world are you talking about? Well, Jesus then explains what it is to be born again, this concept of the new birth. Note verse 5, Jesus explains to Nicodemus that you must be born of water and the Spirit. Now, what does that mean? That you must be born of the water and the Spirit. Now, if you float out there in commentary land, you'll find all kinds of things. There's so many commentators there's so many opinions, and I, I wouldn't be willing to get in a fist fight or even a, a healthy dialogue over this. I just have an opinion on what I believe Jesus means when he says, you must be born of water and the Spirit. Uh, essentially, as I see it, there's a natural birth for all of us, else y'all wouldn't be here. That's the birth by water, your mom's water. When she birthed you, her, her, her water broke, her amniotic fluid broke. You were born first naturally of water. And then you have to be born the second time of spirit. And the reason I believe that this is what Jesus is getting at is because of verse 6. Look down at verse 6. Jesus says, flesh gives birth to what? Flesh. But the spirit gives birth to what? And Jesus says you need to be born twice. The first time by water, your mama births you. The second time by spirit, the spirit births you. Because flesh, your mom, gives birth to flesh, little human. Spirit gives birth to spirit. That's, that is the realm in which Jesus is referring to, the being born again experience. And so we realize that as it comes to being born again, being born again, according to Jesus, is not something that you inherit from your family. I don't know how many of you grew up in a Christian home, but that doesn't mean anything. I mean, it, it means something. It was great. It was the place that you were nurtured. And you may have some advantages, but... Christianity, following Jesus, being born again is a single file line. We all come in one at a time. You are not born Christian. You were born in need of a second birth. And until you have that experience, you are as lost as lost, no matter what your family of origins is. And I know a lot of times that our family of origins, the Christians that we know in the environment we're in, could sort of insulate us from realizing how deeply in need we are. Some of us came from the outside of the church to the inside. For those who are incubated in the inside of the church, it's sometimes hard to see your own lostness. But Jesus confronts Nicodemus and says, buddy, you're lost. You need, you need something to happen to you that hasn't happened yet, that neither being a Pharisee, member of the Sanhedrin, a religious Jew, none of this has helped. You are elite in society and you are lost. You're in a category of lostness with everybody else. And the question that probably we need to ask this morning, especially to those of you who grew up moral, religious, outwardly all together, have you been born again? Have you been born of the Spirit? How do you know? How do you know you're all right with God? What, what makes you so sure? How are you confident? that things are right in your soul with God? How are you confident that you aren't Nicodemus? Have you experienced the Spirit of God entering your life? 
Jesus compares the born-again experience with the Spirit entering you like wind. He says the Spirit of God is like wind. You cannot see it. You cannot control it. But you will see its effects. How many know that about wind? You can't control the wind. You can't even see it. You've never seen the wind. You've seen what wind does. So the other day on Friday, we have our elders meetings on Fridays, and uh, went to some really nice little cafe for lunch. And Friday was a pretty nice day, temperature-wise, but it was windy. I don't know how many were outside around you know, noon, but uh, it was windy, and all our elders, it was a really exciting meeting. They got salads and water. Very healthy elders, have you know, um, trying to keep their hearts and in, in where they need to be and not clog, in, clog any arteries. Um, so, you know, we're sitting around talking about church stuff and, and all that, and uh, the, the wind's kind of kicking up, and the lettuce is flying everywhere, and well, like ice is dumping out. And I think Eric Newby had to grab his laptop a couple times because the MacBook almost flew off the table. And there we were experiencing the wind. We couldn't control it, we didn't want it. But it was moving, and it was moving at its own will and at its own strength, and it was changing the environment. How many know that's what the Spirit does? You are not God over the Spirit. The Spirit is God over you, the Holy Spirit. So when you receive the Holy Spirit, you are being animated by a force outside of yourself that you don't control, that you can't always see, but you will see the effect of the Spirit's work in your life. And if you haven't, then you haven't been born again. The Spirit will make Himself known. The analogy I heard is like a kite, you know? You fly kites with your kids or whatever, and it's just this little floppy thing, and then you, you, you send it into the wind, and the wind animates the kite and sends it soaring in the direction that the wind is taking it, and all you can do is hold on to that string, and if you don't, that thing is gone. And our life with the Spirit is that same way. If you're a control freak, you're going to have a hard time with life in the Spirit. I'm not saying be weird and chaotic. I'm saying the Spirit is up to something. And if you say, Holy Spirit, I want to be renewed. I want to be born again. Jesus said, well, the way the wind works is the way those who are born in the Spirit will work. Your life will be different. It will not be predictable. There will be times when you thought you were supposed to go left and God will say, I'm blowing right. And you'll be like, what? This isn't what I planned in my 10-year plan, especially those of you who are super anal retentive. This is difficult for you because the life in the Spirit can be a little unpredictable. It's not an excuse for us who are poor planners. It's just saying that in the life of the Spirit, you have to be surrendered over to the way of the Holy Spirit. That's part of the born-again experience. That's part of being born of the Spirit is that you will be animated like a kite in the wind. God will take you places and ask you to do things that are beyond what you would have expected. And if you're not ready for that, God's going to turn the tables on you, Nicodemus. You had your old thing all sorted out and God says, I'm going to blow on this and you don't know where we're going and you can't control this. Just hang on for the ride. It's going to be a fun ride, amen, but it ain't going to be easy. Um, so is all born of the Spirit. But I want to spend the time that I have remaining, which is quickly getting away from me, um, by talking about two main questions concerning being born again. And that is how and what of being born again. So just simply those two things for this morning. Um, first of all, how does this happen? Verse 9, Nicodemus asks a question that maybe many of us are thinking, how can this be? 
Now, Jesus is shocked at Nicodemus' ignorance of the new birth. He's like, you're a teacher in Israel, and you don't even know about the new birth? That's shocking. You know, I wonder how many of you, if I just grabbed the hand mic and, and came out and said, tell me about the new birth. If you'd be like, what are you talking about? Get that mic out of my I don't know. Jesus would be like, I can't believe. How long have you been saved? You don't know about the new birth? You can't talk about the doctrine of the new birth? And so Jesus says, this is how this happens. How does one become, as we use the term, Jesus used the term born again? Well, listen to Jesus' explanation of how this happens to us. Verse 13, no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came down from heaven, the Son of Man, verse 13. Verse 14, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever, now listen, verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. So how does this happen? Well, it starts with someone from heaven has to come down. He says, no one has gone up to heaven, but someone has come down. The Son of Man has come down. And of the the musts that come in chapter 3, there are actually three musts. One is you must be born again. The second one is the Son of Man must be lifted up. To explain that, Jesus goes, well, remember Numbers 21? How many of you guys remember Numbers 21? Numbers 21. Israel in the wilderness. The book of Numbers. The book of murmurings. They're just complaining all the time. Everything's not awesome. Everything is awful. Um, to go back to that old Lego song. Um, they're not happy. They're complaining all the time. And you know, uh, just to show you what God thinks of complainers, he sends fiery serpents to go and bite the people and they're dying. Right? So that's why I tell my kids all the time. Numbers 21. Quit complaining. Um, God doesn't like it. Either do we. Um, The people are dying because they've been murmuring about God, about Moses, about the manna, and about the water situation, and they're just complaining. The people start dying because of this complaining, and these serpents are biting them. They're dying, and they come to Moses and say, we repent. We've done wrong. We've complained. How can we turn back to God and get rid of these snakes? And God tells Moses something. It's because you read it in Sunday school. If you grew up in church, you don't even pay attention to how weird this is, but God tells Moses, well, make a replica, a bronze replica of the snake that's been biting everybody. So Moses calls his little bronze uh, you know, statue makers or whatever and says, make a serpent, put it on a pole, lift it up in front of the people, and then tell all of Israel, you got to go look at the, the replica of the serpent and you're going to be made whole. And that sounds like voodoo weirdo magic. That's like, what? That's not enough. That's not going to work. And that is dumb. But you know what? I just got bit by a snake, so I'm going to try it. And everyone who went and looked on the serpent on the brass pole was healed. And Jesus said, just like that, you have to look to the man on the tree who's hung, who will die, who will be lifted up, and you will be healed. He's referring to the cross, and he uses a very crazy story to refer to what he's about to do and said, the Son of Man must be lifted up. The Son of Man must die. I am going to die. I've come down from heaven. I will die, be lifted up, and like the serpent on the brass pole, all who look to me will be saved. Now, as Jesus talks about these multi-metaphors on how someone is born again, the one thing that all these have in common is that it is of none of our own efforts. Being born again 
you did not put much into being born the first time. So if you use a birth analogy, I mean, how much work did you do to get born? That was your mama. She had nine months of carrying you, retaining water, swollen ankles, you know, morning sickness, all that, varicose veins, whatever happens to poor ladies who carry these kids. And then she went through the labor process to have you. You did nothing but float around and get delivered. The same is true as born again experience. It's none of your own effort. The same is true as Jesus used the analogy of it's like the wind. That's not your effort. That's not your power. God does something to you. You're born again. The wind blows. And then he uses the illustration of the serpent on the brass pole. How much effort did the snake bitten have to do to be saved from the venom that had entered their bodies? They weren't sucking out the venom. They weren't playing doctor. They weren't getting you know, poison remedies. They were simply looking to the serpent on the brass pole through no effort of their own receiving salvation from God. No effort on their part. And so our job is simply to believe. Verse 15, note, everyone who believes may have eternal life. Verse 16, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Verse 18, whoever what? What do you think that's going to say? Look down verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Believe, believe, believe. And this word believe is an interesting Greek word because it actually is a Greek word that has the same root as three words. The word believe, trust, and faith they are all the same Greek word. So you say, well, what does it mean to believe? It means to trust. It means to have faith. And in the Hebrew, this word faith, believe, trust, actually is given a word picture. And it's of a person standing in a firm stance with their feet set apart like they were, they were bracing themselves for something. You know, when, when you're standing not off balance, but you're trying to get your balance, the, the word faith here is like somebody standing in position with firmly grounded feet. In other words, the way that you become born again is that God does it and then you just stand in trust and faith and belief that what God says is true. That what Jesus did is enough. It's not your effort, but it's your belief, your faith, your trust in the work of Jesus on your behalf. Can you say amen? So the how is simply by believing in the work of Jesus that he did on your behalf. Secondly, though, we ask the question, what happened? The New Testament has a lot to say on the doctrine of the new birth or what we call regeneration. So you say, okay, like, Brian, like, okay, we're talking about the born-again experience. Like, what does it even mean? What does it mean? What happened to me when I was born again? Well, a few things that you need to keep in mind that have to do with the new nature, the new people that God has made you. So first of all, what happened to you is we become a new person. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone away, the new is here. In Christ, we become new persons. In Christ, we have a new mind. This and other places, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 16, Who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct Him, but we have the mind of Christ. You're a new person. You have a new mind. We have new power. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus told the church, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses. New person, new mind, new power. We have new love. 
1 John 4, 7, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God, and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Love you did not possess from God, for God, and to others is yours today. Is yours because of the new birth, new person, new mind, new power, new love, and finally, new desires. Ezekiel 36, such an important passage Ezekiel speaking of what was coming in this new covenant that Jesus would bring. Ezekiel 25 through 27, God said to Israel, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from your idols. And I will give you, listen, a new heart and a new spirit in you. And I'll remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. You know when you become a Christian, you get a whole new set of desires. A new person with new power, a new name, new love, new mind, and new desires. You are different. You used to desire some things, and God has given you a new set of desires. I've talked about this before, but when I was heathen dogging and not following Jesus, and I didn't have the rebirth experience, reading the Bible, going to church, being a youth group member, singing Christian songs, had no place in my heart. It sounded lame, dumb, and boring. Why would I want to go read that old book and listen to that pastor go on and on and eat and drink the body and blood and participate with any of this stuff? But even as a 17-year-old, when God regenerated my heart, all of a sudden, those desires became mine. I wanted to be with the people of God. I wanted to read the Word of God. I wanted to worship God. I wanted to know God. Did I do anything for that? I did nothing. God did it. He, he replaced the stony heart and gave me a heart of flesh. That's the work of the new birth. You want things you didn't used to want. Before Jesus, your wanter was broken. You wanted things that God forbids and didn't want things. God says, yes, you should want that. But now that God has made you new, you have access to a new heart. You can now live out of the heart that Jesus gave you. And you have, the, you have the two at war within you. But you have new desires. You have new power to overcome. You have new love. You have a new mind. You are a new person. You need to wear that identity. You are new. You're not like you used to be. The old is past and new has come. Your mind is new. Your heart is new. Your desires are new. Your love is new. Your power is new. Your access to God, new, new, fresh. You have been made new. And if you've been in Jesus for a while, sometimes you forget who you are. It's really easy because you can be walking with Jesus for a long time and then all of the Christian doctrines become kind of like, yeah, yeah, yeah. No. If you're going to actually live like a Christian, you've got to go back to the stuff you know and actually live in it. So you say, are you going to do a sermon on being born again? Like, isn't that the ABCs of Christianity? No, 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 no. This is the epicenter of what it is to follow the Lord Jesus, to recognize the new person that you are. Thank you. Someone said amen. Thank you. To conclude, though, we have to address a more difficult side of this text. They're the words of Jesus to say those who believe have eternal life. But verse 18, whoever believes is not condemned, but... Whoever does not believe stands condemned already 
because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. There are consequences to not believing in Jesus. From the words of Jesus, not mine. But Jesus identifies the cause of unbelief. And I know that it's a complex issue with people who don't believe in Jesus and why they don't believe. But when Jesus was talking about what can confound some of us on why people don't believe, Jesus said this, this is the verdict. This is why people don't believe. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world. You either believe that or you don't. But, but Jesus said light has come into the world, speaking of himself. There's light everyone can walk in, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. Essentially, what Jesus is saying is reminding all who are in the category of the condemned, and we hate to talk about this, those who perish, but those who are in the category of the perishing, of those who will be condemned, who are already condemned, do so by will and choice. They hate the light. Their deeds are evil. They don't want to come to the light. They could come, but they don't want to. The opportunity is there for God so loved the world that he gave his son, that you can believe. It's possible for you to believe, but you've chosen not to believe. Now, the thing that I want to spend the rest of our time on, and I'm actually drawing to a close here, but I think this is very important. So if you were falling asleep, wake up. I'm going to finish here, but this is important. I don't want you to miss this. One of the things that I think we try to do as Christians, when we think about those who are perishing and those who will be condemned, we try to come up with the criteria of who's in and who's out. So if someone says, I'm a Christian, based on what? We say to someone else, that person is not a Christian, based on what? We all want the criteria. What is the orthodox doctrinal criteria for someone who's in and someone who's out? There's a guy who dealt with this in the 1970s, um, because this is a difficult issue, especially for those... Um, who work abroad in places where uh, there's a language and cultural barrier. So there was a missiologist by the name of Peter Hybert um, who talked in terms of this and the way we view this concept of who's in and who's out, discerning are someone genuinely saved or not. Um, and in, in Hybert's terms, he uses two phrases. He calls it a bounded set or a centered set. And the bounded set, and we'll talk a little bit more about this, is basically the lines of delineation between who's in and who's out. That's the bounded set. And there are some churches and some Christians that live by the bounded set, that this is the line that says you're in. If you're in here, you're safe. If you're out here, you're not in. The centered set is more of saying that the, at the center of the world, there is Christ, and he is calling all people to himself and so people are in one of two ways. They are either walking away from Christ or turning and coming to Christ the center. So there's not a fence, there's only Jesus. Now, doctrine matters. I mean, I'm a pastor, I care about doctrine, I care about orthodoxy, I care about theology. 
But if we're not careful, we can fall into what Paul Hybert calls the bounded set Christianity, wherein we are trying to discern people in other lands or even in our post-Christian era, what makes you in, what makes you out. We'll keep everybody in, keep those who are out, out until they agree with us and they can climb the fence or we'll open the gate and let them in. And then doctrine becomes the gatekeeper of who's in and who's out. But Hybert says there's another way to think about this. Think of yourself as men and women who are coming to a well to drink, coming to the center, Jesus to drink, and beckoning some to come. Well, that was in the 70s that he did this, and missiologists and anthropologists in the church today, churchmen, have come around this idea and have re-brought out Paul Hybert's concept of bounded set versus centered set, and Alan Hirsch co-authored a book uh, with Michael Frost called The Shaping of Things to Come, in which he takes this bounded set, centered set, and uses the analogy of fences and wells. Bounded set is fences, centered set is wells. And you are either building fences or digging wells. And this is how he describes it. I think it's beautiful and very vivid in my imagination as he talks about it in this way. He says, if you are a farmer with a three-acre ranch, you can build a fence to keep your cattle in and other animals out. And this would be a bounded set. But if you're a rancher, say, with a huge amount of land and acreage, you wouldn't be able to build a fence around your whole property So instead of building fences, you dig wells. So it is then assumed that animals won't go far away from the water source. Now, the illustration looks like this. I think for a lot of us, we grew up in this mentality. There's people who are in and people who are out. And we like this because this makes us feel safe, especially if we're in. We want to know who's in the in club, and we want to know who's on the out club. There's the saints and the ain'ts, and we have two categories for them. In, out, bounded set. And that circle is our theology. That is what keeps us in and out. But what Hybert is talking about, this centered set, is to say at the center of all truth, and what Jesus is saying is the Lord himself, he is the well. And if you notice, even on this illustration, look at that woman, that little figurative woman on bathrooms. She is far away from center, but she is closer or she's at least directively closer than this man right here who looks closer to the cross than than she, where's this woman, excuse me, right there. She's going away from center. She's coming back to center. And the point is, is as we evaluate when we're talking about the way we work with people, secondary, tertiary, doctrinal issues, we don't, make, we don't call that in or out. What we say is we beckon all to come to Jesus. That is my concern. Your views on other things that I might think are a little off, that's fine. Me and Josh Stevens argue about the rapture all the time. And I, he's out in my bounded set. But in centered set, he can come, right? He can come and drink. But it gets more severe, right? Because there are things, your little pet doctrines that you're like, this one really matters. How you view baptism, how you view communion. Can infants be baptized and sprinkled at your church or not? Is communion open or closed? Secondary tertiary issues. If you're going to be bounded set, you can be Nicodemus and not even be in the kingdom, but be inside the fence. How scary is that? That Jesus might even say to bounded set people, so you got all your doctrinal eyes 
dotted and T's crossed, but you are not born again. And yet someone here who seems far away is headed toward the well. So our main concern then is beckoning people to come to Jesus and recognizing when they are moving towards Jesus and celebrating that. I mean, being a pastor can be very complicated sometimes and mostly because of other people who are in leadership. Not my elders, they're awesome. I'm talking about other pastors. You get around a bunch of other pastors and it's like, oh dear Lord. Because there's a, there's a whole lot of theological talk and an in and out talk and who's in and who's out and who's right and who's wrong and we're parsing Greek verbs and theology books galore. And I love and care about all that stuff. But if I'm following the way of Jesus, I see Jesus say to Nicodemus, you want in? The Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life. We're not fence builders. We're well diggers. We're calling people to Jesus. Doesn't mean we don't care about the other stuff. It matters. But people who disagree with you theologically can be on their way to Jesus. Nicodemus was far away, even though he looked close. And there, in chapter 4, you see a woman who seemed very far away, but she was actually very close. Jesus said in John 7, 37, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. In other words, Jesus is saying, You thirsty? You need life? Don't study doctrine and theology. Come to me. We'll disciple, we'll train, we'll teach later. That's why our website is probably never going to look like a doctrinal treatise. Because I don't want people to go on our website and go, okay, EmmausRDU.com. Okay, now I know what they believe about women, about baptism, about what to do with wine and bread, what to do about infants and baptism, what to do about this and that and where they stand on the rapture, no rapture, a rapture, postmillennial, premillennial. And then people will decide from the safety of the internet whether or not they're going to ever come to our church. We want enough information on our website to say, this is the well, come drink here. Someone will say, well, I think differently about sexuality than you do. Come on. We'll have a conversation. I may not agree with you, but I'm not going to keep you from the well. I'm going to say, man, there's growth. There's, there's scripture. There's study. There's sanctification. But, 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 the, but, at the, but the core, we are people who call men and women to the well. Obviously, this is a big conversation. But I think as we draw to a close we just know this. We can say this for sure. If someone comes to Jesus, he will make them new. So my main goal in life is to do whatever I can to point men and women towards Jesus. Like John the Baptist, he said, I must decrease. He must increase. Jesus gets bigger. He'll correct everybody. And don't you know you all are going to get corrected in heaven. Jesus will school us all on our doctrine. No matter what Josh Stephen thinks about the rapture. I'm just picking on him. At the end of the day, we're all, we're all in for a theological correction. If we get raptured, I'll be wrong, right? If we don't get raptured, Josh will be wrong. But we'll all be in heaven. It's going to be awesome because we can come to this well. Well, let's pray and stand together.
What a way to close.